Welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into the exceptional leaders at Bain & Company and spotlights the incredible work they're doing here. You can look up their bios online, but that only scratches the surface of who they are. On this podcast, we share the stories that show why our leaders are truly extraordinary. Joining me today is Steve Perez, a founder of Bain's enterprise technology practice, an advisory partner in our Boston office, and author of Doing Agile Right. Steve first joined Bain in 1980 and has spent more than 30 years of his career with the firm. Today, we're going to talk with Steve about his journey to Bain and his long career, including two boomerangs back to the firm, the origins of Bain's enterprise technology practice, and what technology he believes the business world should be most excited about. I'd also add that Steve is a longtime friend and someone I've had a chance to work with in recruiting a bunch. So Steve, it's great to have you on the podcast. Keith, terrific to be here. We are long overdue to catch up, so why don't we just jump right in, Steve? I like to give people a sense of who they're listening to and start with a little bit of their background. You certainly built a career in technology. Was that something you were interested in at an early age? It was, Keith. It really started probably when I was watching Star Trek as a kid. The original series premiered when I was seven years old, and I watched it faithfully. And then the moon landings, which started when I was nine or ten, also kind of cemented my interest in technology, I would say. So it's a similar story you'll hear from a lot of the uh, the dot-com execs these days, but I did get a passion for technology from those sources. And, and also from my older brother who went to MIT about four years before I was ready to think about college. But during high school, I did some coding, but at the time there were no personal computers, of course. I had to go to the local university that had a program for high school students and sit at a terminal and program on a on a mainframe. So the world has changed quite a bit since then. It certainly has. And Steve, where are we? Are we in the early 80s or the late 70s at this stage? Actually, the mid-70s okay. when I was in high school. So I started started uh, MIT in, in, uh, in 1976. So that's what was going on kind of 73 to 76 was my high school coding days. I asked because I was actually online with a BBS in the mid 80s, sort of pre-internet and everything that you did online back then or everything you did with a computer, it just felt new. None of your friends were doing it. You really couldn't talk about it. There weren't, you know, there wasn't a YouTube channel where you could learn new tricks. You just got to go in and experiment a lot. Well, even more so in the 70s, it was uh, definitely not in, on the radar screens of the general public. Yeah. And so, Steve, you, you mentioned that you went to MIT. Great school, I might add, by the way. Shout out to all the MIT engineers out there. Um, what did you study when you got there? So I studied computer science and engineering. It was closest to my interests that I had built up to that point. I'm going to fast forward a little bit because there's a lot I want to talk about with you today, but also somebody who studied Core 6 uh, electrical engineering at MIT. I know the program, uh, my guess is, was just as tough then as it is now. But what did you want to do on the back end of that? Did you know that you wanted to go into business? Did you want to sort of stick with the coding and computer science field? Yeah, that's a great question, Keith. I grew up in a very business-oriented family built around a family consumer products business that not only my father, but two uncles. And when I was quite young, my grandfather, who was the founder of the business, were involved in. And I kind of knew from a young age that's what I wanted to do. So my father had an MBA, and I knew that's what I needed to kind of have credibility in the business world. But the undergrad was sort of up for grabs. So I say, oh, I'll just do something I'm interested in. It seems like it might have some relevance to business. 
So that's how I set off for college. And I was planning to go to business school right after college at that point. I applied, uh, got into a number of places, but uh, one of the places I got into was Stanford and they gave me the option to either come directly or to defer a couple of years. And they said, if you decide to defer to get some some more experience before school, we'll help you get a relevant job. I said, well, that sounds kind of interesting. Let me explore that. They sent my resume to a bunch of investment banks and a bunch of consulting companies. I interviewed a lot, decided pretty quickly I wasn't that interested in in investment banking, but consulting was intriguing. Uh, Bain was one of the companies they sent my resume to, and it just seemed like the best fit. So that's where I went. And for me, it was just uh, you know a couple of years of kind of you know continuing my my education on my way to uh, to get to the family business. But uh, when I started at Bain, it was only seven years old at the time, so quite quite early days. There's probably a whole set of questions people are wondering about. Wait, Stanford helped you find a job by circulating your resume, but we'll we'll sort of skip that for a second. What was what yeah, was it th- like? Th- 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 things were different back then. I, I know that's not <laughs> not a and and you know it was not super common, but it was it was more common to go sure. right from undergrad into sure. into business school. I have to ask here, given that you were at Bain, arguably near the founding days, how is the culture? changed or similar today as it was you know, 30, 35, 40 years ago? That's actually interesting because it, it is remarkably similar than it was back then. And the things that I liked about Bain in 1980 are quite similar to what right. I still love about Bain today. So you're working with brilliant colleagues in a very high energy, collaborative environment, people focused on learning and teaching being very externally client focused in, in what we do. And I'm just, I'm a learning junkie. So being in a situation where even 30 plus years later, I'm trying new things and learning new things all the time and feeling supported by my colleagues are things I really enjoy. And that's what made me love Bain the first time. And well, I guess we'll get to this, but also why I came back. So Steve, you do the AC role for a couple of years. Presumably, you end up back at Stanford saying, hey, remember me? I did the job at Bain. I'm, I'm back. You do the two years at business school. And then how do you decide what to do next? Did you have the option to come back to Bain? Did you, did you want to go back to the family business? Well, I did have an offer to come back to Bain. And I came very close to doing that right after business school. But I thought about the opportunity to work with my family. It's something that I had planned to do all along. It's only back that I had enjoyed Bain so much that made me realize, hey, I think I'm probably going to like this better than the family (laughs) business. But I I realized if I if I didn't try the family business, at least get that experience, I probably never would. So I said, you know, I'll, I'll do it for maybe two or three years, get that experience, then hopefully go back to Bain. Well, you know, family businesses are complex things. And one thing led to another, I ended up staying for eight years. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, what I was doing there, which kind of kept me excited is I would move from function to function. I would lead uh, IT or lead HR or lead, you know, credit and collections, or or even I did a stint leading a factory. Mm -hmm. And in each place, I would kind of reinvent the function and then recruit someone to replace me and move on. So it was kind of like consulting within a traditional business environment, which I was finding interesting for a period of time. Yeah, and, and that that experience of being able to move around and really get to know the business inside and out, I have to believe was was 
built on the foundations that you started at Bain and continued at Stanford, but also just gave you a heck of a foundation for whatever else you would do down the line. Ultimately, though, you did decide to leave the family business, maybe a little bit later (laughs) than originally planned. How did you end up back at Bain? Well, so first of all, even though I was having a good time in the family business for uh, for you know a considerable amount of time, I kind of ran out of functions to reinvent, and I was realizing <laughs> that the routine work of just being in a general management role for a period of time was less interesting to me because it didn't involve as much innovation and change. It was just too high a mix of routine work. So I realized, you know, consulting is something I was going to enjoy more, and then frankly, I also. Consumer products is not not a high-tech industry, and, and one I realized I wasn't going to be interested right. enough to stay in that industry. So, well, of course, I just uh, came back and said, oh, I want to accept my offer now. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, eight, eight years later, these things do have expiration dates. But I uh, was staying in touch with a number of, of folks over the years. Just in, in networking, they um, made it clear to me that I would have the option to come back if I want to. And uh, ultimately, I decided that, uh, yes, that would be exciting and fun. And, and that's what, uh, what I did. So, Steve, you, you mentioned that you came back to Bain. And, and I think it's a good testament to what we always tell people, which is when you join Bain, you sort of join the family. You never really truly leave the family. In some ways, you went from one family business back to another family business, depending on how you want to draw the lines. Let's talk a little bit about rejoining. You know, what was it like in the 90s when you rejoined? I think it was 1992. What was the same about the job? What was different about the job? And what were you expecting to do when you came back? Sure. Well, first of all, in many ways, the way that Bain did consulting, the core focus on client impact and results as opposed to just you know, good ideas or, or problem solving, that has been a constant during my AC days, during what it was like in the early 90s and, and up through today. But the tools of the job have changed remarkably. <laughs> so you know, when I started as an AC, literally the first year we had no computers, we had no voicemail even, let alone email, uh, no no voicemail. So as an AC, when I was traveling, uh, I had an assistant uh, that I shared with eight other ACs, but who would read, I would call in and um, and my assistant would read my messages to me, my phone right. messages right. to me, right? And uh, a spreadsheet was literally a piece of paper with little boxes on it. And if you needed to change the assumption in a model, that could be an all-day exercise of, uh, you know, right. just recalculating by hand the, the spreadsheet. So so that was the AC days. When I came back in, in 92, we did have computers. You know, we had a couple of them in every bay. Right. Uh, some people knew how to use them. Some people didn't. It was far more limited. Certainly nothing was portable. I was very much of a voicemail culture. We did not have email yet, but I think probably a couple of years later, we got email. So all those mechanics about the job just changed dramatically during this period. But the fundamental work we did, you know, we build fact bases. You know, we start with hypotheses. We draw inferences from the fact basis. We make recommendations. We help clients implement them. That has been remarkably similar over the period. We just now have 
far better tools. And we'll probably come to this too, but you know, the range of tools we have today has just exploded versus where we were in the nineties or even where we were five or 10 years ago. Steve, I, I completely agree with you. I try and explain to ACs that even when I started in the mid nineties, you know, Google wasn't a thing. I mean, you, you would spend a huge part of case ramp up just trying to find the baseline data. And a lot of times now that's handed to you on day one, you know, in, in not even on a memory stick anymore. It just comes to you over, over the web. And it's just an entirely different way of, of thinking about the job. Now, I joined out of electrical engineering in the mid-90s. You came back in the early 90s, but with a computer science background and a tech interest. That was about the time, for those who remember, the dot-com bubble started to grow. And you made a, a tough decision about your career and the trajectory you wanted to be on. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and what you did? Absolutely. So uh, when I returned at the end of 92, I was doing what most people were doing in those days, which was a generalist consulting path. We right. didn't really have organized practices. Right. We moved from industry to industry and capability to capability, just case by case. There wasn't a whole lot of deep expertise and support, et cetera. But, but I, I went down that path for about six years in 99, that was really the height of dot-com fever, and I guess I caught it. My MIT friends were all in startups, engineers, et cetera. My Stanford friends were either in startups or maybe funding startups. Right. And all, all multimillionaires, I would add on paper at the time, <laughs> remembering all of my friends who were millionaires at the time. On, on, on paper. On, on paper, paper. Totally on yeah. paper. Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, my interest was just in technology, and I felt that even though at Bain we had always worked for technology clients, this was about applying technology to business, kind of the user side of technology. We often call it digital today. And I was feeling pretty left out and not uh, really being able to participate in my area of greatest interest that has suddenly become all, all the rage. Right. So out of some frustration for, for, for that I uh, and just serendipitous opportunity that came by, I ended up uh, leaving to join a dot-com. But within the same year, I, uh, I realized that I wanted to move on to something else. I wasn't considering Bain as an option. Then I was thinking, you know, let me let me go on to the next dot com right. or, or or something else. Right. But this was also right towards the end of the bubble, and and that was that was worrying me a bit. Uh, thinking, hmm, I just wonder how much there really is there there right. in many of these many of these companies. But at the same time, one of the people I talked to just in networking was Bob Bicek who was at the time a partner who had been given responsibility to start a technology, kind of user side technology practice or digital practice at Bain. And he said, you know, I can help connect you to a lot of different places, but would you consider coming back? Because I've got this, got this mission and I think you'd be really a great fit for it. And ultimately, that's what I decided to do uh, and partnered with Bob in developing that practice, which started out, I think we called it the e-commerce practice, and then it was the IT practice. Now it's the enterprise technology practice, but has also really grown and, and, and blossomed a number of additional related practices in advanced analytics, global engineering, 
digital innovation and design. It's really exciting, you know, 20 plus years later to see how this has become, you know, core to how Bain Bain works today. While at the time it was a kind of novel and uh, not not clearly accepted idea right. in the early days. Yeah, I mean, people kind of laugh now, but there was a time when you were afraid to order online and put your credit card in your computer, right? That is for sure. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that long ago. Steve, can you talk briefly about what it was like scaling that practice and what it took to actually bring that vision that you and Bob had talked about to fruition? Because it's grown, obviously it's grown a lot and has, has gone down a lot of different paths, but you know, what were some of the challenges that we had to overcome in those early days? Yes, well, yeah, the first thing we had to do is overcome the internal perception that technology work is tactical. Right. And uh, and even the perception at the time of many of our clients that this is a support function and right. the main thing you want to do is just have it be efficient and low cost. When we were realizing that technology is really a strategic capability. It was becoming more and more obvious from the companies that were succeeding by having great technology innovation that we could no longer effectively formulate strategy or, or execute it, uh, help our clients do that without without a strong technology function. So, so the, fir the first, first thing to overcome was getting the mindset. You know, some of our partners understood that, but many of our partners, probably the majority, were not were not yet there. And it was proving to them that there was number one client demand for premium consulting for Bain and Company type consulting for this work, and that we could do it effectively. Right. So. We started by just hiring a few people externally, recruiting a few more with the right backgrounds internally, and just started to do the work. We yep. sold cases, we executed them, and we began to demonstrate those two things were true. There was client demand for this, and we could do it successfully. And it was winning over our partners internally one at a time, winning over our clients one at a time. But over time, we did that. We got funding to further grow the practice. And effectively, that's what we've been doing uh, ever since, continuing to grow and scale once we've you know, demonstrated that. And and those are no longer issues. No one no one says anymore, oh, is there a client demand for this or can they do it effectively? It's, it's something that uh, we and our clients take for granted. Steve, I want to shift gears again and talk a little bit about all of the work you've been doing inside Bain, especially now as one of the, the senior leaders in the firm, you've walked across a variety of practices, enterprise tech, agile, healthcare, financial services, and others. You know, how would you pull together all the different experiences you had into a single thread so that people can understand the, the trajectory of your career and the expertise you've been building? Well, my two passions in my professional career, and to some extent, my avocations have been business and technology. And the core mission of the ET practice is to bring those together. So you'll see that thread running through my, my whole career since I returned in, uh, in the late 90s. And, uh, and then Agile has emerged as the approach that the great technology organizations use. So it's what's allowed digital natives to compete in industry after industry with the legacy firms there. Two of the industries I've worked most in, uh, financial services and later healthcare, are both being transformed by technology. 
I tried to hit each at the peak of the transformation. So FS, that was probably closer to 10 years ago, and healthcare right. is right in it, in the thick of it right now, where providers and payers and, and even pharmas are realizing how effectively technology can dramatically transform their businesses and are in, in the process of, of, of doing that. So, so that, that's the thing that really ties it all together. That's really great, Stephen. You mentioned a word in there that I want to key in on for a second. You mentioned agile. It's another one of those terms that people may have heard of, but a lot of people probably don't fully understand it. Can you help our listeners understand what agile means in the context of, of business and what you've been doing? Sure. So Agile is an approach to innovation that uses small, dedicated teams to incrementally and iteratively build solutions in close collaboration with customers. That is the essence of it. It's now the dominant approach to software development, but it's being used for product and process innovation well beyond technology. And so compare and contrast that with how things have been done traditionally. You know, does this mean that we sort of try and fail, try and try again, you know, every two weeks we might come back and, and tweak the model or as opposed to going away for, you know, 12 months and coming back with a finished product? How, did, how does this work in practice? That's the gist of it, Keith. You know, the way that technology was run for decades, technology organizations, and, and I'll talk about agile and technology, but this to some extent is true for product and process innovation, is people would go off and spend a lot of time doing a very, very detailed design of what they wanted to build. Sometimes they'd spend a year or more planning a new system right. or, or product. Let, let's stick with technology, a new system. So then they, they, they spend a year or two building it and then they roll it out and they hope it does, they hope it does what, what they expected it to do. Right. But it turns out that as the world became more and more complex, as systems became more and more complex, that model broke down because it became impossible to predict the exact features that were going to lead to certain outcomes with users and customers. And this agile approach of doing very high-level designs, but then breaking them down into small pieces and testing those pieces, building them quickly, testing them with users or customers, and then refining them has proven to be dramatically more effective. So, you know, it's been estimated that 70% of all software features have no value or go unused uh, when built in the old model. And if you're doing it in an agile model, you, you, you start a feature, you see if people use it. If not, you cut it off instead of spending another three months refining it or, or, or adding to it. And you get ideas that, that cause you to try other things you never would have thought of in the, in the initial design. So that's why, let's say, a company like Target or Walmart, if they hadn't moved to Agile, they, they would be in a world of hurt compared to Amazon. But instead, they're competing quite effectively right. with, with, with Amazon, both in the digital and in the, and, and in the physical world. But uh, if they had stayed in their traditional waterfall project oriented model there's no way they could have kept up right and steve you know there's there's something about your career journey where you've sort of always been on the the cutting edge of integrating technology and business and and agile is certainly going to be a part of that what does it mean for a firm to do agile right which is a phrase that has a special meaning because i think that's the title of your book as well 
It is. The full title being Doing Agile Right Transformation Without Chaos. That alludes to the fact that so many companies undertook the agile journey and achieved chaos and not the results they wanted because uh, they weren't doing it right. It was the impetus to write the book. So, of course, to get the full answer, you'll need to read the book. But if you want a quick answer now, some of the keys are knowing where to use Agile in an organization, where not to use Agile. We don't think that an organization should be completely converted to Agile teams, but that innovation work should primarily be done with Agile teams. Other keys are adopting Agile with an Agile approach. It is ironic, but many companies did a big kind of waterfall, big bang implementation of Agile. It's crazy. (laughs) It's not following Agile principles and doing Agile. And of course, they had the hubris to think, well, we could design every element of this, roll it out, and it'll work. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. So we start with a small number of teams, build up a model, work within that company. Right. And, and build from there. So knowing that you need that, knowing that you need that test and learn, uh, having senior leaders be very involved in the process and viewing Agile as one of the most important initiatives and having clear and sound business objectives and pursuing Agile rather than just seeing it as an end of itself, you know, knowing great organizations these days are Agile, so we'll become Agile. Well, no, you need to think about what your organizational mission is and how Agile will be uh, an approach and a tool to help you achieve that that mission. Yeah, I've been a little bit close to it now. We have a couple of projects that I'm involved in that are using Agile inside Bain today. And one of the things that's been interesting is it's just new muscles. Like you're not, you know, you don't like for things to go wrong. You don't like to learn tough lessons. And what I like about Agile, the way we're doing it, is you sort of learn quickly what works like what doesn't, like you said, and you move on and and you're okay with the mistake. You're okay with improving it. You're okay with pulling the plug. As long as you're continually learning and, and adjusting as you go, it's a really different way of working for me and for a lot of the team, I think. It is. And teams love it. When you're doing Agile right, you are enjoying coming to work in the morning. Yeah. I remember it wasn't Agile, but I remember working uh, in airport operations at O'Hare. And we would sort of study what was going on. They were running pretty late on their flights and we would make changes. And the next day by lunchtime, we'd look at the on-time departure data and see if it was working. And there's something about that rapid feedback that's just awesome. Yeah, I, I hate to break it to you, Keith, but that was agile, what you were doing. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to have every element of what's in the scrum guide to right. be agile. If you're, if you're iterating, you're getting fast feedback, you're, you're adapting your designs, that is an agile approach. Awesome. I, I will have to update the bio on that. Steve, um, as we start to close, you know, maybe you can give us an example of a recent client that you helped make a, a significant digital transformation and, and impact on their business, sort of tying together all the different skills and, and techniques you've picked up along a, a great career here. Absolutely. One of the success stories I'm most proud of in recent years is working with a large healthcare provider in reinventing their digital capabilities. And I got a lot of satisfaction from that because it had a real impact on literally millions of people who were being served by this organization. Historically, they had been very, very slow in any kind of technology innovation and just were not keeping up with the needs and the opportunities of their physicians, of their patients and so forth. So we helped them redesign their digital 
organization to be able to move much more rapidly and much more agilely <laughs> to achieve a whole set of objectives they had. You know, an example being an end-to-end experience with some type of health episode where the patient's could use an app at the front end to input their sy- symptoms and get directed to the right channel. We'll, we'll use that, that, that term, right? the right mode of care. So is this something I should go to an ER for, an urgent care center, make the appointment with my physician, et cetera, all the way to, you know, okay, I'm going to the hospital on an outpatient basis and there's four things I need to do there. I need to see the physician. I need to be, I need to get some tests run. I need to pick up some medication. And the app would kind of walk them through all those different steps, including literally the steps to take throughout the facility to get there. And then there'd be follow-up on the back end that would be prompting them for, you know, do you have any of the following symptoms three days later? Have you taken these medications, et cetera? So it was able to create kind of an end-to-end digital experience that was really, really helpful and valuable for patients. And this is something that would have taken many more years or maybe would not have been done at all without this change in the way they did their work. Steve, as we start to wrap up, I want to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit and and give people listening insight into what's coming in the future. And what gets you excited about what you're seeing in technology today and some of the emerging technologies that you see out there where you go, wow, this this could be the next big thing or the next big step change in how technology affects our everyday lives. What things pop up on your radar as you think about that? So big data and analytics has been a really important theme for a number of years And the organizations that have done a better job of capturing, organizing, and utilizing data, and a better job of the data science of building models to draw insights from that data have really been leaping ahead of competitors. So that's been a broader trend for a number of years that we've been very excited about and helped many clients through. We are potentially on the verge of an inflection point in the use of AI in business. And I'm sure you've all seen chat GPT in the news. Hopefully most of you have an account and are, are, are playing with it yourselves. But these large language models on which something like chat GPT is built on are really quite revolutionary in getting to the next step of uh, impact. Bain has a preferred relationship with OpenAI which is the organization behind ChatGPT. And we're working with them to identify opportunities in each industry to work with one or two companies to really reach the next level of use of AI in their industry using using these, uh, these technologies. And it is going to be a step change in capabilities and one that I and we are very excited to be uh, on the cutting edge of. That's really awesome, Steve. I'm looking forward to playing around with the tool a little bit more. And it's one of those new things. It's a it's a new tool in the toolbox, if you will. It's not a it's not an end in itself. It's a it's a means to an end. And all the different things we can do with it are, are probably going to be pretty amazing. Absolutely. And it's knowing which use cases and applications of it are going to achieve the most value and uh, and also just how to 
use it and not misuse it because there are uh, any new technology has just as many opportunities for misuse as effective use. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing what what comes of that because it it should amplify a lot of the great work we've already been doing and helping our clients navigate a a new landscape just like we did in the in the dot com bubble just like we did you know before that when computers started revolutionizing industries this could be the next thing that they need to prepare for and when companies are faced with those types of challenges they call Bain and they call you and the folks in the enterprise tech practice to help them tackle it so thank you for that well we enjoy it and appreciate the opportunity. Steve, we were long overdue to catch up, and I'm so glad you were able to make the time for the podcast today. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing all of your insights. You've had an amazing career, and I'm glad to have been a small part of it, and I'm glad we captured it on the podcast today. And thank you, Keith, anytime. time.